All right, good morning. It's great to be together with the family. I want to kick things off with a couple of announcements. Uh, the first is that this Wednesday we'll be together for Congregational Midweek on Zoom. That'll be an exciting time together. We're going to kind of finish off one of our series and start a new series at the same time. So that's exciting. And then next Sunday, we'll be back in action here. So I know for July and August, we were meeting here. We're going to keep meeting here in September as well. And so uh, there's some cool things in the work as we're looking for a more permanent place. But this has been a, an amazing place to be able to worship. And thanks for all those that helped set up and do children's ministry and everything like that. And then the other announcement is that we have a board meeting today at 2 p.m. on Zoom. That's open to everybody. So if you're interested in that, speak to myself or Mohinder or any other board member. And uh, you can join that at 2 p.m. on Zoom as well. If you have a Bible, turn over to Luke 17. So our theme as a church has been a year of loving biblically. Not the year of loving biblically, like we just do it for one year. But kind of really focusing on what does it mean to love like the Bible says to love. So we're going through the book of Luke and looking at Jesus' example. And one of the reasons that we've chosen to have this theme that we've been doing all year isn't just because we want to grow in loving, but we also want to grow in our depth of knowledge and conviction about the Bible, right? Because we can't just love shallowly and, and, and have kind of a nice, good feeling kind of love. Our love has to be rooted in truth. And the truth is found in the Word of God. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to look at an entire chapter of Luke. We're going to go through all of Luke 17. And it's going to be okay. We'll, we'll still get out of here on time. But we'll go through a whole chapter. And uh, we're going to kind of look at how do we, as Christians, how do we read the Bible together? So we're going to do some interpreting exercises today. Sound good? Good. Because that's what we're doing. All right. Luke 17 is where we're going to be. A couple rules that can be helpful. The first is this, scripture can never mean what it never meant. So when you're trying to read and understand the word of God, this is a really important rule. Because what can happen is our own experiences or what we want scripture to mean, we kind of let that bleed into our understanding of the word of God. And that totally makes sense because we want to hear what we want to hear, right? But we have to really put ourselves in the, the shoes or the the sandals, what, what have you, of the original audience of the Word of God. Now what's interesting is when we read about Jesus, we're doing two things, right? When we read a, the book of Luke, we're both putting ourselves in the shoes of the original audience. So if he's talking to the Pharisees, we're, we're trying to understand what were the Pharisees understanding from Jesus. But we're also interpreting what was the reader of Luke reading when he first read this letter and that story. So there's kind of this double kind of engaging in Scripture. Something that's helpful with that, another rule for us, is that Luke, or an evangelist, which is a good news teller, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, they are arranging the stories and teachings of Jesus to tell this meta-narrative of the Holy Spirit. And what that means is that the Holy Spirit is, is, has this message throughout the entire Bible that he wants to transfer to our hearts. And so Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is picking what stories in what order are going to help bring about that meta-narrative. And what's cool is we can trust it because it's from the Holy Spirit. And so when we read a chapter like Luke 17, we can ask ourselves, why this teaching around this... Uh, this uh, happening or healing around another team. Why are these placed together, right? And of course, they, they happened at, at the same time, but there's a lot of things. John says you couldn't fill up an entire library of books about the works of Jesus. So, so the evangelist, Luke, picked certain stories and teachings to put together by the Holy Spirit to give to us 
so we have a better understanding of what it means to love biblically. Sound good? We can agree to those rules as we go forward? Awesome. Good. <laughs> good answer. All right, so we're going to go ahead and read through Luke 17. Probably hard to read on there, but uh, Luke 17 verse 1 says this. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day, and seven times they come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant, when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And they went, they were, as, and as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, We're not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Rise and go, your faith has made you well. Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, Here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will know, where you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. <coughs> Excuse me, it's a lot of reading. Uh, people will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running off after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who was on the housetop with possessions inside should go down and get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord? they asked. He replied, 
Where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. Interesting uh, kind of chain of events that's happening here, right? There's a lot going on, and it can be a little bit confusing. It starts off with some capital punishment, right? If you cause someone to sin, you should have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the water. That's not good. <laughs> it's not, not an outcome that you want. Then it moves on to, you got to forgive somebody. And the disciples say, hey, we need more faith. And he goes, if you only have a little bit of faith, that will be enough. Then there's this teaching on the mindset of a servant. Then there's this uh, grateful leper, right, that returns. There's nine that don't return, but there's one that does return. Then there's this teaching on judgment day. And you're like, where's this coming from? Well, let's go back to the lepers. That was a nicer story, right? The judgment day comes in. And then there's this teaching on Noah and Lot. And you're like, okay, that's, I remember the story of Noah. I kind of remember the story of Lot. What's happening here? And then we have something about vultures, right? And that's what's happening here in Luke 17. So we're going to try to dive into this chapter. And one thing that can help us understand, and this is great uh, when you're trying to understand something in Scripture, is to look uh, right before uh, the passage that you're reading. So right before this in Luke 16, if you guys remember from house church a couple weeks ago, is the teaching of a, a man named Lazarus and a rich man. And it's a parable. And the parable goes like this. The rich man would interact with Lazarus every day who was out begging with sores on his body. And, and he was begging for some help. And the rich man every day would uh, reject that cry for help. Then eventually the rich man is thrown into hell and he's suffering and he says, give me some relief. And no relief is found. And he goes, well, well go in and tell my family, you know, send a prophet. And, and he's told, prophets have already been sent, right? It, it, they won't even believe a, a man that has risen from the dead. And so it ends kind of in this way where you're like, did Jesus just paint this picture of hell? And, and absolutely he did. And so that's kind of the teaching in a parable that precedes this, all right? So that's kind of all the context. Now we're going to piece it apart and kind of break it down just a little bit, all right? And we're going to go by parts. So the first part um, is this teaching on not being a stumbling block. And this makes sense to come right after the teaching of Lazarus and the rich man because the rich man was a stumbling block for Lazarus, right? He neglected the needs. He, he neglected the call to answer the needs of those around him neglected to serve those in his proximity, and he faced consequences for it. He was a stumbling block to Lazarus. And so Jesus is saying, hey, there's going to be stumbling blocks. That's inevitable, but it is controllable. You can choose not to be a stumbling block in someone else's life. And Jesus takes this teaching incredibly seriously. He, he takes it uh, up a level, right? Sometimes Jesus is like, you shouldn't do this, or this is a bad idea. Here he says, if you are a stumbling block, it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the water. And you're just like, did Jesus really say this? This just doesn't sound like something Jesus would say. In fact, I believe it's one of the most intense teachings of Jesus, because he takes the call for us to be an example to those around us very seriously. If we're meant to bear the image of God, and he says you're not doing that, the consequence you deserve is severe. Yeah. We're supposed to take our call to bear his image very seriously. And then he warns the disciples. He goes, you know, the way to prevent this is that you need to help one another. And so if your brother sins against you, rebuke them, which doesn't mean a harsh rebuke. It just means expose what has been done, right? That's all rebuke means is to expose something, to shed light on something. And if they repent, forgive them. And even if they sin against you seven times in a day, you still need to forgive them. And you're like, really? Seven times in the same day? 
then they're like, oh, I come back, or I'm sorry, or I repent, or whatever. After like three or four times, you're starting to doubt that they're, they're uh, sincere in their repentance, right? He goes, it doesn't matter. Your call is to forgive them. There is no room for grudges in the kingdom of God. We must forgive. And so the apostles respond with the absolutely appropriate response, right? Give us more faith. We need some help. Up our dosage of faith because we cannot carry out this call to forgive. You know, Jesus says, go and preach the word. They're like, amen, we got it. And he says, go and forgive somebody even if they sin against you. They're like, whoa, we need more faith. Hey, we can go die, you know, in the synagogues and face the consequences. That's fine. But forgiving someone when we're hurting, whoo. I need a little more faith if we're going to be able to do that. But then Jesus responds to that and says, actually, you don't need more faith. You know why? All you need is a little bit of faith to be able to carry out the will of God. Because it's actually not more faith that you need, but you actually need a different perspective. And so that lends us to this uh, teaching on a servant mindset, right? He goes, you don't need more faith. You need a change in your perspective. Right? You need a change in getting rid of entitlement. That's where he goes and teaches on this, this idea of a servant. Right? If, if someone is serving you and they come inside and sit down and say, okay, it's my turn, you say, no, 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 that, that's not how this works. Right? We had someone working on our, our roof not too long ago. We needed to get a new roof. We got a new roof. It was great. They were working hard. It was, it was a hot day. We brought them popsicles and brought them some beer. And Elena was like, don't give them beer until they're done with the roof, right? I was like, I don't know. It's a hot day, whatever. So anyway, <laughs> but uh, that, was, that was a nice gesture. But what if they knocked on the door? They're like, hey, we're ready for our popsicles. Be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> this is not how the arrangement works. Like we're, we're paying you. You're fixing the roof. It, it, would, it would be an odd feeling. They're like, hey, I, I smell terrible. I'm going to take a shower. Is that cool? I'd be like, Whoa, 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 what's going on? I don't know, Scott, have you ever done that? Just taking a shower and someone's... No, okay, that's good, that's good. But that would be a strange dynamic that wouldn't be fitting because their role is a servant. And so Jesus is saying, your role as my follower is to be a servant and that you are not entitled to anything more than that. And again, you read that, you're like, oh, surely there's some other Greek word here and that sounds really hard, maybe I can... No, that's what it means. We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. That is our role in the kingdom of God. What we are entitled to in the kingdom of God is to serve God. And by the way, when we have that mentality, the call to forgive somebody is way easier. Because I'm not entitled to my own uh, grudge. I'm not entitled to my own resentment or my own bitterness. Why? Because I'm only a servant of God. Forgiving someone, bring it on. I'm just a servant. Serving somebody, bring it on. I'm just a servant. Giving, sharing the gospel, bring it on. I am only a servant in God's kingdom. Now, sometimes when we read something like this, different mindsets. If you're a guilty soul, you'll, you'll take this, you know, if you're not a guilty soul like myself, you're like, okay, awesome. Let's just be a servant. That's cool. I'm awesome. I'm going to be the best servant there, you know, whatever. But if you're more of a guilty soul, the word unworthy is really unsettling, right? And you're like, does Jesus just want me to feel like... I'm just, just trash. I'm, I'm just this unworthy servant. Woe is me. Well, that's where we look at other passages that speak on God's view of us, right? And we know that Jesus wants us to see that we are undeserving of his love, but yet he loves us deeply. And we're not merely servants. We're children of God. But we're children of God who serve. Does that make sense? And so that's where you put some scriptures together to better understand some challenging passages. So it starts off here. If we're going to summarize part one, it's this. 
You have a responsibility to do what is right. That's kind of, if you sum up part one, you have a responsibility to do what is right, no matter the circumstance. And we cannot take this lightly. I do think Christians, by the way, have a hard time with entitlement. I think sometimes we live this Christian life and we think if we live a good enough life, we should experience a good enough life. Right? And we serve God and we're, we're, we're willing to, to, to give our, our resources, our time. But all of a sudden when things don't work out our way, we begin to get bitter. We get bitter towards other Christians, towards people calling us to serve. We get bitter towards church or we get bitter towards God. And we say, why isn't my life going the way I thought it was? I did A and B. Where's, where's the result that you promised? Instead of we've only done our duty. And it's real. I can feel this way. I feel this way when I serve in general, right? I serve around the house. I'm looking for my trophy, right? I'm like, okay, come on. I did the dishes. Where's the praise? Bring it on. Yeah, you know, that's, that's my mindset, right? You know, I, and we can, we can be this way in our Christian walk as well, right? I, I've done all of this. Where's my thank you? Where's my reward? Instead of looking to a heavenly reward that God promises us in his kingdom. So part one, we have a responsibility to do what is right. So let's look at part two, right? Part two, we like. You know, he heals the lepers. We're like, yes, that's awesome. You know, we talked about healing today, and I appreciate that message. But what's interesting in this passage is that uh, these, these lepers are crying out, saying, help us, help us. You know, they can't get close to Jesus. So they're crying out out of faith. And he says, go to the priest, go, go for that cleansing and you will be healed. And somehow, as they're walking, they're healed of leprosy. That's what it says, as they went along their way. So I don't know what happened as they're kind of walking, it's just fading away. I'm waiting for that episode of The Chosen, just to see it kind of disappearing as they're walking. It'd be a really cool image, right? But as they're walking, only one turns back. And Luke here holds the kicker for us, right? He comes back, he throws himself at the feet of Jesus, which coming back and, and, and praising would make sense. But to throw himself at the feet of Jesus, instead of going to the temple, is saying, Jesus, I recognize you are the temple, right? And so he's doing something that's outrageous in Jewish culture. And then here's the shock factor. He's the Samaritan. He's a Samaritan, by the way, in the Jewish mindset. He, that, was, that was someone who was trash, right? We know the, the phrase, a good Samaritan. That phrase didn't exist. It was an oxymoron, right? That would be the good sex trafficker to a Jew. That is how they would have seen it. And so this guy to come back and be a Samaritan? No, <laughs> that shouldn't be how it is. And yet that is the person who is most grateful. What often happens is that the least entitled person becomes the most grateful person in the kingdom of God. The less entitled we are to receive things from God, the more grateful we're going to be to serve in the kingdom of God. And the result of that, what is the greatest praise? Less entitlement equals greater gratitude and results in great praise of God. You know, the, the reality check for the disciples here Saying, hey, you are not entitled to healing. You are not entitled to hold on to a grudge. Instead, you must forgive. Instead, you need to serve. Instead, get rid of the entitlement and live a life full of gr grateful service in the kingdom of God. You know, when I know, when I'm really kind of face to face with my sin and I know what I deserve, it's a lot easier to serve others. Right? When, I, when, I, when I know what I should get and I, and I don't get it because of the grace of God, 
man, serving God is so much uh, easier, and it's also a lot more joyous. When we're entitled to a nice life because we're a self-proclaimed nice person, that's where we miss out on the kingdom of God. So part two can be summarized as this. You have been given a great gift. Part one is that, uh, I forgot what part one was. Let's go back for a second. Um, someone wrote it down, right? All right, I'm all off. There we go. Part one, you have a responsibility to do what is right. Part two is summarized as this. You have been given a great gift, all right? We are the lepers in this story. We've been given deliverance. We've been given healing, as, uh, as Mo talked about today. We are undeserving, and yet we receive this great gift from God. The question, though, is are we going to be the one that goes back and goes and praises God through grateful service? Right? Are we going to be the, uh, I think I said 1%, are we going to be the 10%, right? The, 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 the 1 out of 10 that goes back and serves God. And by the way, what a great gift it is to be delivered. What a great gift it is to experience the grace of God. I, I need that every day, and I'm grateful for it every day as well. So let's get over to part three as well, all right? Part three, this is where we get into judgment day. This is where it gets even a little bit more intense, right? And if you're like me and you're kind of reading through the Bible, this is where you just say, okay, what did I take away from this? I should be grateful like the lepers. I'm going to skip over this sulfur raining down from heaven, some about vultures. Okay, God, help me to be more grateful today. Amen. But we kind of got to sit and wrestle with the text a little bit, right? There's, there's something here. And we also have to remember, these are the words of Jesus, Jesus did not merely come to say, hey, everybody, let's be nice and let's be grateful people. Amen, amen, kumbaya, I'll see you guys when I come back. He goes, you've got to be ready because I'm coming back and you're either going to be Lazarus or you're going to be the rich man and there'll be a consequence for how you chose to live. Jesus promises us that there will be a consequence to how we chose to live our life. These are his words. This is his reality. This is the Jesus of the Bible. When we say WWJD, this is what it's talking about. Not simply being a nicer or kinder or more grateful person, although that's in encompassed in the ultimate call of Jesus. So, you know, in this passage, he goes, it's going to come like lightning. You're not going to, lightning that goes from end to end, you're not going to miss it, right? Because they're trying to figure out, okay, where's the kingdom of God going to be? And they're looking for an earthly kingdom. And, and Jesus is essentially saying, when I come back, there's going to be no mistaking that I've returned. You're not going to be like, oh, is this the end times? You're going to be certain that this is the end times, that I've come back. It's going to happen like that. And by the way, every generation, I believe, thinks that whatever's going on in the world today, oh, it's the end times. We must be getting close. I think they've done that for two millennia, right? Oh, Jesus must be coming back soon. The world's getting crazy. I think they thought that every generation, right? So I don't think we know when it's coming. Jesus says it comes like a thief in the night. But when it comes, you'll know it. And by the time that you know it is here, it will be too late. That's a reality, again, that we must face. These are the teachings of Jesus. And then he brings in some truth with Noah and Lot, right? And he says, okay, in Noah's day, people were doing things that you normally do, and then the floods happened. And the only people that were delivered were those that obeyed God, Noah and his family. And so the call is for us to not be caught unaware, but to be like Noah and his family. And then he gives the example of Lot, which is a little bit different and a little bit better, in my opinion, because Noah is this faithful servant. I feel a little bit more like Lot sometimes, who's a little bit lost and wandering and getting into all kinds of trouble. And Lot still responded to the, the call of his, uh, I believe, his uncle uh, Abraham to leave Sodom 
and, and to flee, and he avoids the destruction that falls on everyone else. But the call in here is to make sure that you are, are not looking back on an old way of life, not being caught unaware, but responding to the message of God and obeying, right? And then there's even this warning, don't be like Lot's wife, who looked back and, and, and looked, ended up becoming a pillar of salt, and she's still a little salty to this day about that, right? I had to throw that in there, right? I didn't make a, I know a guy joke, so I had to throw in a salt joke, right? But this idea is, is you have a choice. You can be the people that are unaware and not obeying the call of Christ, or you can respond and, and uh, experience that deliverance. And so Jesus is saying, you have a choice to make. And then he brings it all to a head in verse 33. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. If you try to hold on to your will and what you want, you're going to lose it ultimately. But if you lose your life, if you give up your own will, surrender your own will, you will preserve your life. And then there's this idea of two people will be working in the field or two people will be in the same bed and one will be taken and one won't. Some people will experience the kingdom of God and some will not. Make sure you experience it. That's simply the message that Jesus is saying here. Don't miss out. And, and embedded in all this is timing. The time is now. It's not a, uh, a round to it. You know what a round to it is? It's a round, you know, I'll get around to it. It's most of my like to-do list, right? Okay, I'll get around to it. It's not a round to it. This is a, you got to do this now because we don't know when the time will come and you don't want to be caught unaware. And then the whole thing in here about the vultures is basically saying, if there are vultures in the air, you know that there's a dead body. And so you're not going to be caught unaware. So that's the same mentality, right? You're going to know when the end is here. And by the way, I don't like preaching on this stuff, right? I sound like, uh, repent, the end times are coming. You know, it, it gives me a weird feeling. But these are the teachings of Jesus. And we can't just flip through and say, okay, let's get over to 18, right? The rich young ruler. I like that story. We have to sit and wrestle and face the reality that there is an end time and we need to be ready for it. And Jesus came to prepare us for that. And we need to know where we stand before our God and not be caught unaware. And by the way, losing our life, giving up our will, is actually the secret to freedom. Yeah. Noah gave up his will to do what he wanted and obeyed the will of God, built the ark, and what does he experience? Freedom from the destruction, right? And so this world says, no, hang on to your will. You got to keep your freedom. Well, your freedom is actually enslaving. And when you give up your will, you actually experience freedom in Christ. So part three is this, don't sleep on God's judgment. Don't be caught unaware. We've got to take his words seriously. There will be a time where he will discern if we are with him or not. And by the way, that has very little to do with whether or not we're a good person. And everything to do with our relationship and connection and salvation in him. All right, so let's put these parts together, right? Because we have these three separate ideas. How do they all come together? All right, first we got this. I'm entitled to nothing. Here's a list of everything you're entitled to. There's nothing, right? I'm entitled to nothing. But I've been given a great gift of deliverance and healing from God. Though I didn't deserve it, I've received it. And praise him for it. Part three is in response, I surrender my will. Not my will, but yours be done. The same thing Jesus prayed when he was in the act of delivering us from destruction. So if we put it together, it can be summarized like this. Now is the time to serve. If I'm giving up my own life and I've been given this, this gift, I don't want to delay, but today, now is the time to live a life of service to God. 
And I believe that's the big idea of Luke 17. Now is the time to serve. Jesus didn't come into our lives simply to help us be kind to others and spread good energy. He came to call us to change. Right? Spreading good energy is not how the, the blind receive sight, not how the oppressed are freed. But it comes through following the example of Jesus who came to serve. He came to serve and he calls us to do the same. One of my favorite quotes in my head is, he came to get down, right? He came to serve, to get on his knees, to wash our feet. So get up, get up, and jump around. Amen? But he came to serve us. And by the way, Jesus does not suggest things. He commands them. The words of Jesus are not nice guidelines, like the Pirate's Code from Pirates of the Caribbean. No, they are commands from the mouth of God. He calls us to serve, to give, to sacrifice, and to give up our will for his. So let's ask this question this morning. How's your service in the kingdom of God? If you have a little check engine light or maintenance required or service required, how's your service in God's kingdom? Let's talk about serving the poor just a little bit. When was the last time you went out and, and served someone who was poor? And when was the last time you went out and did that when it wasn't a church activity? And amen for those things. We needed to be doing more. We're looking for more volunteers to help us plan those things. Those are great. But how's our heart towards the poor on our own accord? Remember, that's the context of this as Lazarus is rejected in Luke 16 over and over again, asking for help from the poor. How's our service to the poor? But it's not just the poor. How's your service when you're at work? When you're dealing with different co-workers, when someone asks for your help with something and that's not your job, how's your service at work? How's your service at home? Serving around the house with your roommates or with your family? Do you come home from a day of work or come home from a, a, a challenging situation and say, hey, I put in my time, I'm done. Now's my time to be served. Or do we take up the gauntlet of serving like Christ did over and over again? By the way, Jesus had these long days where he would go, like, let's hop in the boat and let's go rest. And he'd, you know, land on the shore and there'd be more people to heal. And he had every right to say, hey, I, I, you know, business hours are closed. But he kept going, right? He kept serving. And by the way, serving isn't just doing stuff. That, that's actually the kind of service I don't mind. You know, especially with, you know, you know, AirPods or something. You put in some headphones, you listen to a podcast. I can clean the house, have a good attitude, because I'm still doing what I want, right? Service sometimes is engaging and listening in a conversation. Amen. It's being willing to engage relationally. Sometimes the men are like, hey, let's serve. I'll go mow the lawn. That's awesome. I don't have to talk to anybody for three hours, you know, whatever. That, that, that can be great, but service is also listening and engaging in conversation. Right. And listening and discerning the needs of those around us. Essentially, service is not doing what you want to do. And often it's doing things that you don't want to do. That, that's a good uh, gauge of service. How about serving in the church? We operate on service, right? We, we, we cannot function as a church without everyone serving. We all have a role. 1 Corinthians 12 says every person has a role in the church. Everybody serves. For a long time, our church and other churches have operated in the 80-20 principle, which is where 20% of the people do 80% of the service. And I'm here to say we cannot do what we are meant to do as a church body without that changing. We cannot do what God has called us to do as a church without everybody taking up the gauntlet of service and saying, how can I serve? You know, we have a hesitancy 
to not like being voluntold to do something. I don't like being voluntold to do anything. If you don't know what that means, that means like the, hey, can you do this? But instead of it really being a question, it's a, hey, you're doing this. You're signed up for this. We have such a, a knee-jerk reaction to that, right? Where it's hard for Kingdom Kid workers, or our Kingdom Kid ministry to find people to serve. Where it's hard for our ushers to find people to serve. Where it's hard for uh, our, our hope people to find people to volunteer for, for projects. We don't like being voluntold, but when was the last time you volunteered to serve? When was the last time you said, hey, I haven't served in Kids Kingdom in a while. How can I help? Man, I haven't done this in a while. What can I do to help? We were so afraid of being voluntold that we stopped volunteering, which is what we're supposed to do in the first place. And I'm not just saying this to us. I think this is people in general, right? It's not just our church. I think our church is filled with some amazing servants. And, and we, again, we couldn't be doing the stuff that we're doing without you guys. And so this isn't an indictment, but it's a call to say, if we want to reach new heights, We've got, to, we've got to go lower and serve even more. And this is for myself as well. Because our service, when it's rooted in people or ourself, we're going to get tired. We're going to get fatigued and we're going to want to check out. But when our service is rooted in God, that's where we're able to serve continually. How we respond to the opportunity to serve reveals who we are truly serving. How we respond. If it's about us feeling good, then the call to keep serving is going to get old quick. If it's about the, the functioning of the church or the functioning of an organization or the functioning of our family, then we're going to get fatigued when things don't go the way we want it to go. But when it's about serving God and being close to Him, we can say, bring it on. How can I serve more and more? What can I do to honor the will of God in my life? Here's a quote. The true test of a servant is how you respond when treated like one. The true test of a servant is how you respond when being treated like one. This was shared in a lesson from this passage that I listened to uh, down in Atlanta when I was down there, and this cut deep. I, I don't want to be treated like a servant. When I serve, I want the trophy, remember? That sounds great. Oh, I appreciate you, bro. Thanks for doing this. That's awesome. I, I acknowledge all the things that you're doing. But man, being treated like a servant means... We're really serving the audience of one. To the applause of nail-pierced hands. That's who we're serving. So how do we respond when we're treated like a servant? By the way, I think when we're treated like a servant, when we're, we're experiencing thankless service, that's when we get to be closest to Christ. Um, let me uh, skip one more over. Service unites us with Christ. In Philippians 3, you don't have to turn there, but... Uh, Paul says, I want to know Christ. And by the way, Philippians was written when Paul was 30 years old as a Christian, right? He's been a Christian for 30 years. He goes, I want to know Christ. I'm like, 30 years? Like, you probably already know Jesus a little bit, right? Like, we're, we're good, right? Because I want to know Christ and the power of the resurrection. That sounds good. By uh, joining him in suffering. So if you want to know Jesus more, you got to suffer more. That's how we get close to Christ. And Jesus shows us this in his life. In Philippians 2, it says that Jesus, though he was God, chose not to be equated with God. And he lowered himself and became a servant and a slave of all and ultimately died a shameful death on a cross. Jesus, who had every reason to be entitled, emptied himself of said title and lowered himself to serve us. You know, I, I showed this slide Earlier, Jesus uh, does not suggest things. He commands them, but then he also demonstrates 
how to live. He doesn't just tell us what to do. He shows us what to do by giving up his ego, by giving up what he deserves to serve us. And because we have that gift, we can serve in whatever capacity we need to. Less of me means more of God, and that's what our world needs today. Less of me means more of God, and that's what our world needs today. There are people dying without the message of Jesus. There are people being blown up that don't know the grace of God. And we have that. We have that message. We have that gift. We've got to let it change us. We've got to realize what we have and how special and incredible it is and allow that to cause us to go out and want to impact the world around us. We have been given a great gift. We don't deserve it, but this gift has entitled us to serve. So my challenge for you this week is simply this. At the end of every day or the next morning, ask yourself this question. When did I feel most like Jesus yesterday? It probably won't be when you were reading your Bible. Doesn't mean don't read your Bible. It probably won't be when you, uh, you know, went to church. Doesn't mean don't go to church. We, we know that that's not suggestions, but commands from God, as we mentioned earlier. But it might be in this small moment where you chose to say no to something you wanted and yes to something the Holy Spirit or God was prompting you to do. And I think it'd be interesting, kind of an experiment at the end of the week to say, what were the moments I felt most like Christ? Might have been the hardest parts of your day, by the way. Might have been the most challenging situations you faced, but that's where you got closest with God. That's where you experienced intimacy with Christ. So take some time to ask yourself this question. When did I feel most like Christ yesterday or the, today? And as a result, you know, this is the message of Luke 17. This is the, the call for us to love biblically. That means dying to ourselves, letting go of what we want, letting go of our desire to hold a grudge or bitterness or not forgive, and letting go of our desire for praise and entitlement and all this stuff, and instead taking up the cross with Christ, choosing to serve him because we have this great gift of deliverance, this great gift of being made well like the lepers, and we have to choose to serve, and now is the time to serve. Amen.